0: Two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies.
1: Thank you once again, Rebecca, and welcome to the last of our lost episodes of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Cole.
0: And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And today we're going to be talking about concept albums. Now, most people would agree that in the minor music area... The cons- the first concept album was Woody Guthrie's album, Dust Ball Ballads, which came out in the early 1940s. But as far as rock music goes, the idea of the concept album didn't really take off until the one-two punch of the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which came out in 1967, and Tommy by The Who, which came out in 1969. And when both of them not only bowled over critics, but sold quite a lot of albums... In this, that led to the 70s being the time of the concept album for a lot of bands. And Hollywood even took notice and made a few movies of those concept albums. And of course, Claude is going to remind me that one of those concept albums, even though it was based on a Broadway show first, was Jesus Christ Superstar. But at any rate. Oh, no, no, no. That was the other
1: way around. The concept album came first, which financed the show, which is why the cast is completely different (laughs) or or mostly different, I should say.
0: Did I not say whatever? (laughs) Yeah, I
1: know, I know. That
0: inspired. We're just wandering too
1: deeply into Andrew Lloyd Webber territory
0: here. Yes. But that inspired movies that were bad, like the movie version of Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah. And weird, like the movie version of Tommy, though, since it was directed by Ken Russell, that should go without saying. And. Even a couple of good movies. And we're going to talk about what I think are the two best movies made from concept albums today. From 1979, Quadrophenia, based on the album of the same name by The Who that came out in 1973, with the movie being directed by Frank Rodham. And from 1982, Pink Floyd's The Wall based on the album The Wall by Pink Floyd, which came out in 1979, and the movie was directed by Alan Parker. Both movies are period pieces. Both movies are based on double album concept albums. And as it happens, both movie movie versions cut out my favorite song from each album, and we'll get to that. But first, Claude's going to give us the plot description for Quadrophenia.
1: Yeah, and let me note up front, if you're hearing any weird noises on my end, it's it's because I've actually got my, my 11-month-old grandchild sitting on my knee as, as we record this one. So this is his podcast debut, I guess. Anyway, Quadrophenia, it is 1964 and we're following the life of Jimmy Cooper as played by Phil Daniels. He's a young London mod. We opened with a shot of Jimmy standing at the edge of a cliff overlooking the ocean at sunset. He turns away from the cliff and he begins walking toward the camera. Now we cut to Jimmy riding his scooter late at night. Jimmy has uh, parents who are Always being generally disappointing, and he's got a crummy job in a mailroom, so he spends a lot of his spare time partying, riding scooters, taking speed, and brawling with rockers, accompanied by his mod friends. Dave, Chalky, and Spider, played respectively by Mark Wingett, uh, Philip Davis, and Gary Shale. Now, for those of you who weren't paying attention during the last episode of this show, the Mods' rivals are the Rockers, but in this film, we do get a better explanation of the difference between the two. The Mods tend to dress sharply, they listen to current music, they drive around on scooters. The Rockers, on the other hand, wear leather jackets, they drive full size motorcycles, and they listen to 50s era rock and roll. Jimmy discovers that one of the Rockers is his friend from childhood, Kevin, played by Ray Winston. They spend some time together, and in their eyes, the major difference between the two groups is in the way they dress. Now, Jimmy has himself a little crush on Steph, who is played by Leslie Ash, and while he's shy about that, he isn't above approaching her to talk about her plans for a long weekend that's coming up. It's here that we learn that A, Steph isn't serious about the relationship that she's already in, and B, she has caught wise to the way Jimmy feels, even if she doesn't specifically act on it. When Spider's a scooter breaks down, he and his girlfriend are accosted and Spider is beaten up by some rockers. This leads directly to retaliatory attack, which happens to target Kevin. Jimmy participates in the beating, but when he realizes the victim is Kevin, he doesn't help out. He, instead, he just Hollers at the others and he drives away on his scooter. The next morning, Jimmy takes the day off of work and he cruises about in search of amphetamines for that long weekend. It takes him literally all day and all night, but he manages to score the pills he's looking for. Unfortunately, they turn out to be fakes, so he and his friends vandalize the dealer's car. As an alternative means of scoring drugs, they manage to break into a pharmacy. They do find some pills, but given that they're identifying everything strictly by color, Who knows whether they got what they were looking for. Later that evening, Jim goes to a cafe where he runs into Steph. Uh, She invites him to bring her home and they start making out. But she also makes it clear that in doing so, she's just stepping out on her other boyfriend. The long weekend sets the stage for the rivalry between the Mods and the Rockers to come to a head as they both depend, uh, descend rather upon the seaside resort town of Brighton. A series of running battles ensues, uh, starting with Chalk this time when he's run off the road while they're on their way down. At a huge party for the mods, we encounter a very suave, very popular mod who we know only as Ace Face, and he's played by Sting. Steph is kind of taken with him, so to get her attention, Jimmy goes to the balcony level of the club and he dances on the ledge. Then he stage dives to the floor. He's immediately ejected from the club, and he winds up on his own for the night, spending the time walking around by the seaside. Chalk and Spider go looking for a place to sleep, and accidentally wind up bedding down with a bunch of rockers. But they manage to keep quiet long enough to get away with it. The next morning, the rockers—I'm jo- sorry—the mods join a parade, and all is well, if a bit boisterous but when Chalk spots the rocker who ran him off the road, a full-on riot ensues. As the police close in on the rioters, Jimmy escapes down an alleyway with Steph, and they have sex in their hiding place while the melee continues. When the pair emerge, they find themselves still in the middle of the action, just as police are getting control of the riot. Jimmy is arrested, and he finds himself in the paddy wagon with Ace Face, among others. Later, he's fined the sum of either 50 or 75 pounds. There's a continuity problem here, which makes it unclear. But anyway, it's a lot of money for Jimmy and it's a lot for pretty much anyone in 1964. Aceface mocks the magistrate by offering to pay on the spot with a check to the amusement of the other mods in the courtroom. Back in London, Jimmy becomes severely depressed. He is thrown out of his house by his mother who finds a stash of drugs. He then quits his job. He spends his severance package on some more pills and he finds out that Steph has returned to Dave. He engages in a brief fight with Dave and tries to return home, but his father literally chases him away. Jimmy spends the night on his scooter and trying to avoid the rain. The next morning, he sneaks into his house and he takes some of his belongings. Then he tears all of his pictures off the wall. He then waits by the roadside for Steph to come by, hoping that she'll help him understand what's going on. They get into an argument and she rejects him. Not long after that, he wipes out the scooter, and as he rolls off of it, a truck crashes into it. The police who try to help him are rebuffed, so they just walk away. Jimmy takes a train back to Brighton, getting himself back into mod mode on the way in an attempt to relive the recent excitement. So he revisits the scenes of the riots and of his encounter with Steph. As he walks up the street, he discovers Ace Face's scooter outside a hotel. Moments later, Jimmy is horrified to discover that his idol, the guy who was just too cool for school, is really just some bellboy at the hotel. Jimmy steals aces scooter, and he heads out to Beachy Head, where he rides along the edge of the cliff there. He stops the bike, and he contemplates the ocean far below for a long time. And finally, he revs the scooter to top speed, and he jumps off just as it goes over the edge and crashes on the rocks at the bottom. And under the closing credits, we're on a freeze frame of the destroyed scooter, but Those who are paying attention realize that the film actually ends where it began, with that image of Jimmy walking back from the cliff's edge at sunset.
0: So for both of these movies, we're going to talk a little about the music and the album that inspired the movie, or the band and the album that inspired the movie, before we talk about the movie itself. Now, in the 50s, um, one of the aspects of London culture that helped it transition from the post-World War II depression period that they were in was the influx of jazz from America. And a lot of the folks who followed jazz in London were known as modernists, because jazz sound back then was modern. And that got shortened to mod, which is how we got the nickname for those folks in England called Mods. And what made them distinguishable from other youths who were rebelling at the time, not just in England, but also in America, is that these folks dressed stylishly, as in the movie. They dressed a lot in suits, or at least uh, they—the men, anyway— or at least they appeared to be well-dressed and prided themselves on being well-dressed. And they embraced consumer culture, even if maybe they treated it a little ironically— And, of course, as in the movie, they took a lot of blues or amphetamine. And after jazz fell out of fashion, they listened to the next big thing, which was R&B. And as with other British invasion bands in the first wave, and even the waves after that, The Who were initially inspired by american r&b but they were also initially um they were initially um patterned as or promoted as i should say a mod band by their original manager pete Meaden. however The band itself decided that they didn't just want to be known as a mod band. They wanted to be known as being something bigger. So they eventually dropped that label to become what they were eventually known as. First, an R&B band, like as I said, other British invasion bands such as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and then... Also, more than any other band in Britain at the time, a band connected to the youthful rebellion of the time with songs like My Generation. But while Pete Townsend was as eager as his other bandmates to move on from just being known as a mod band, he never lost touch with his mod roots. And so after... The band hit it big with Tommy, and then Townsend suffered a nervous breakdown when trying to steer the band toward the next concept album, Lifehouse, which was eventually scrapped, though a lot of the songs became became one of the best-known albums of the band and a lot of people's favorite, Who's Next?, he eventually decided to write an album that was a tribute to the those times that the Mods flourished in Britain, and that was Quadrophenia. Now, Mod wasn't the only influence on the album. Townsend also being someone who liked to experiment with form, not just with his lyrics, was very much into the quadraphonic sound that that had developed at the time. And he also wrote the album as a way of expressing different personalities of the band, just like Jimmy is supposed to be... Having separate personalities of his own in the album and in the movie. And Quadrophenia, though it sold very well, wasn't thought of as well by critics or people writing about the album as Tommy was or who's next was. But I have to admit that this is my favorite album of theirs, and it is... Uh, this is going to date me (laughs) also my desert island album that if i had to choose only one album to bring with me to that desert island that somehow had its own electrical system it would be this one because it expresses every emotion you'd ever feel as a teenager and the confusion that entails even if you did not grow up in lower-class London. It's universal that way, even as it tries to remain specific to what it's talking about. And for the most part, with a couple of things I'm going to mention, I think the movie does a very good job of capturing that album's spirit
1: yeah i think you're right in that respect it it does capture the spirit of the album and at the same time at least for me you know the the while i like the songs on the album i like them all okay for for whatever reason they never quite came together for me as a continuous story if that makes sense the way as we get into like the wall just has like a, a a through line narrative um and, and so I, I think Quadrophenia is, is almost like um, the relationship between 2001, A Space Odyssey, the film, and 2001, the novel, where you kind of need one to get the other. And and so th- basically they fill in the gaps for one another. And and I think that's kind of what's happening here is like if you got the film and you've got the album, the film kind of fills in some of the holes that the album leaves behind because it didn't provide for me like a like a totally coherent narrative until i saw the film and then i realized okay here's where everything's just kind of falling into place and you know maybe that's just my my initial reaction to the album went along the lines of i wasn't really thinking about it in those terms that's entirely possible I, like i said i love the songs but i just didn't get a story
0: out of them does that make sense Well, I would argue that the album isn't story-driven the way, say, Tommy is or The Wall. Okay, sure. You know, those are clear stories. This is creating a mood, more like. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't looking for a story much as much for theirs. I was looking at it as this is an album that's trying to immerse you in the life or viewpoint of this person. So it didn't have a straightforward story. And as far as the movie goes, uh, the movie version of Tommy tells a story in an operatic manner, meaning that the dialogue is almost all sung. And that is, the f- was the first movie that where that had a rock opera as opposed to just a regular movie version of an opera and even accounting for the weirdness of that it was weird in a lot of other ways as I mentioned because it was Ken Russell right and the filmmakers behind this movie Decided to eschew that approach. Um, for starters, Frank Rodham, who was the director of the movie, his background was documentaries as well as a made for TV movie, which unfortunately I have not been able to see, called Dummy. And his approach to that was made for the BBC. And his approach to the movie is very documentary like there's almost all of the movie is shot on location with the exception of the dance hall seats and the filmmaking there's, I don't know how much handheld camera they had back then, but it's done in a very cinema verite style. Yeah. And you get the impression even though this may not have been the case, that a lot of the people involved may have been locals on the scene because every, mm. the stri- the uh, goal here seems to have been to have uh, as many authentic-looking people as they could possibly get for the movie. And as a matter of fact, while the lead actors may not have been mods or may not have come from mod culture, a couple of the supporting supporting actors did. Toya Wilcox, who plays Monkey, a young woman who has her eyes on Jimmy, except he only has eyes for Steph, she actually came from mod culture. So that helps lend this uh, air of authenticity to the movie.
1: Yeah, plus there's also an element of, was it, wasn't it was there a lot of, uh, like, just guerrilla filmmaking going on, like shooting without permits and so forth, and keep having yes. to watch out for the police?
0: <laughs> yes, the fight scene, which, by the way, is based on a real clash that took place in Brighton in 1964, mm-hmm. though supposedly it was not nearly as prolonged or as um, damaging to the to, for the mods and rockers between each other or to the property around it. Uh, some of that was done uh, guerrilla filmmaking style, as I recall from Rodham's commentary on the DVD that I have. And they also, supposedly, mm-hmm. wanted Johnny Rotten, or as he was known mm-hmm. by then John Lydon, to play Jimmy, or maybe even play Ace space But apparently the studio wouldn't allow it, because, of course, they couldn't get insurance to cover whatever he'd do, and... Even though John Lennon was a Who fan, he later claimed that he was never interested in being the movie, being in the movie, anyways. So that all came to naught.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I, I, think what I had heard was that he had actually auditioned for, um, or not, not audition, but rather screen tested for uh, Jimmy. I didn't know about Ace Face.
0: Right, but, but anyway, um, another thing that they did to try and make everything, oh, and Frank Rodham had been a mod um at the time, so he knew what the movie was talking about, and what he and cinematographer Brian Tofano do to help treat things more authentically was they use a lot of wide-angle lenses to make sure that everybody involved in the scene is in the shot. And he treated the extras like actors rather than just people who are standing there just to show that there are people standing there in the shot. You know, he would talk to them like there were actors in the scene and he did a lot of rehearsal with all of his actors and he encouraged a lot of improvisation and he even encouraged the actors to come up with their own thing and would allow them to convince them of things to do or things not to do. In one very well-known example, uh, Leslie Ash and Phil Daniels were originally supposed to have for their sex scene, uh, have both of them be nude and they were supposed to be in a basement and Ash refused to do it, at least refused to be nude. And so Rodham came, and the producers came up with the idea that Jimmy and Steph would have sex in the back behind the alleyway against the wall, fully closed. And while Roger Ebert has written about the fact that having sex against the wall is not as comfortable <laughs> as what the movies make it look like, in the end, it works for the movie because they've escaped from the crowd they're flushed with excitement and the fact that they just decide to do it then and there, you know, that's realistic as well.
1: Yeah. I think it actually works out better in that respect because, uh because of the, as you say, they're in a hurry. They just got out of this thing. The, the, the emotions are heightened. Everything is just frenetic at that point. And they got themselves into this tiny little space and, you know, or, right up against one another and sure you know why not release the tension somehow and that they do with the clothes of course they're going to do it with their clothes on because of where they are and 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 it, it i think it makes a lot more sense that way than if you um you know, had them escape into a basement somewhere, and there's plenty of time. And all of a sudden, it's very quiet because, like, while it is quieter where they are, you can still hear the noise, you know, going on just down the alley. And so, um, so there's still like an element of, of tension and danger going on as they're doing this thing. So, I I think it definitely works out better in that respect. And if I could jump back to. You, you mention of the uh, the use of the wide-angle lens. And I think one of the other things that it does is it, it tends to give kind of like equal weight to so many different elements in the image. And at the same time, we're able to still focus on whatever we need to focus on in any given scene. And so that's like a testament to, you know, the, the placement of the bodies in every shot and the, the, the cinematography and how everybody works out. And so- I think it, it's, it's terrific that way, and apparently uh, my young friend here agrees, so good.
0: <laughs> okay, now one of the things that they also did, um, Ronan and Tufano, uh, for Jimmy's cliff ride on his scooter, the way they were able to do that, even though they didn't have a lot of money for the movie, was they fixed a camera to the back of a Citroen sports car and that's how they were able to follow the motorcycle as it was driving along the cliff. And that's a very well-done shot. And, of course, what helps the shot as well is the music. Now, as I said, this is not Tommy, so characters are not singing the songs from the album. Most of the album's music, although there were some songs that are, cut out, and I'll get to that in just a moment, are used as score music. Mm -hmm. Um, The ones at the end, of course, are I've Had Enough, and Bellboy, when Jimmy sees Ace Face, is a bellboy. And also You have songs like um, Is It In My Head and Dr. Jimmy and Mr. Jim, which plays over the closing (laughs) credits. And when Jimmy's on the train, of course, 5.15 plays. Sure. But but that's how the music is used as the subtext to Jimmy's emotional state throughout the movie. We also have um, source music of a lot of, Music from the time, like at some point uh, the, fo- the folks at the party Jimmy goes to are dancing to the crystals to do, do Run Run. And we also see Jimmy uh, putting on, at one point, My Generation, which would come out a year or two later, but okay. And right. we see... Jimmy watching uh, The Who on Ready, Steady, Go, while his stepfather looks on disapprovingly. Or he comes into the room while Jimmy's watching and he looks on disapprovingly. And of course, in that scene where Jimmy first meets his old friend, um, who uh, Kevin. Kevin, they're both singing different songs. Kevin is singing Beepaloula, the song made famous by Gene Vincent, whereas Jimmy sings You Really Got Me by The Kinks. who Pete Townsend has always acknowledged as a huge influence on the Who, and claims that Ray Davies, who wrote that song, is a better songwriter than he i don't agree with but most of this as i said most of the music in the movie is from the album source music although there are a couple new songs that are used in the movie that weren't on the album get out and stay out which jimmy uh, which plays when jimmy is kicked out of his apartment by his mother who's played by kate williams by the way that Originally, it was supposed to be Amanda Barry playing Jimmy's mother, but hmm. according to Rodham, she quit the film because she was going through some major personal yeah. issues at the time. So William stepped in ably as the replacement. And speaking of things that were cut out, my favorite song from the album was cut out, Sea and Sand, which expresses uh, the emotion of when jimmy gets kicked out of his house and although i can understand why they cut the song out because maybe rodham felt that the song was a little too on the nose i still sort of miss it yeah
1: on the nose is not necessarily a a terrible thing especially when you know the purpose of the music in this particular film is really to to underline what's going on. All right, it's it's um, you know it's not as you mentioned where the the characters are are singing, but but we're being some given a, you know a little bit of a cue as to the individual character's state of mind. I guess that's that's the best way to to frame that. So you know to. I, I don't think that it was, it was a bad song in that respect, and it is kind of unusual of a choice to, to leave it off the album.
0: Right. Now, for the record, Townsend, who served as one of the producers on the movie and also helped with the music, he liked the movie, but he felt that it could have gone deeper into the fact that Jimmy is basically mentally ill which apparently the novelization by Alan Fletcher, which is out of print, did. But of course, novels can do that more than movies can. And I think that's where the music really helps. It does cue you into the fact that Jimmy, not just because he's um, hopped up on amphetamines all the time, But he isn't really playing with all of his marbles, so to speak. You know, he's not someone who maybe should be institutionalized, but clearly he feels out of place wherever he goes. Even the leading moments of happiness that he has, having sex with Steph, sharing... um, A ride in the back of the police wagon with Ace Face where he feels like he's cool for once. You know, those are the high points of what is is at best a very manic depressive state of mind here.
1: Yeah, it's, it's possible that that's the case. And then the other thing that kind of crossed my mind is that he is, you know, young adult. And so that that there there is just a lot going on. You're still kind of trying to find yourself. You don't know where you belong. And you're still in a place where emotions are generally heightened. And certainly, you know, the situation that he's in and the drugs that he's taking, you know, none of that is going to, to help matter. So is he genuinely mentally ill or is he just you know a product of his of his age plus his situation you know that's a little bit debatable I think but but the but the fact is you know yeah he's, he's not entirely of sound mind one way or the other
0: right now as far as the technical part of the movie goes another person who deserves credit is the editor Sean Barton who was a last-minute replacement for Mike Taylor, the original editor, who Rodham discovered apparently didn't like the movie because he was editing it all wrong. Ooh. So Rodham brought in Barton, and Barton makes all of those uh, scenes of the fight between the mods and the rockers cut together very well. So you get a sense of the confusion going on, but he also handles the quieter moments as well, such as when we go from, I think just the mods being in the bar to Jimmy alone outside on his motorcycle as uh, part of the punk and the Godfather plays. And, you know, it's, a very smooth transition instead of feeling abrupt. So does that very well. And, of course, the cast deserves a lot of credit here as well. Now, I'm not terribly familiar with Daniel's career after Quadrophenia. I know that he was a voice of uh, one of my favorite kids' movies, Chicken Run, from about 20 years ago. (laughs) Okay. And he's done a lot of TV, and he's done a lot of... um, He did a lot of movies that were in the same style as um in uh, being the sort of nineteen seventies kitchen sink type stuff and he was even in another music related movie, Still Crazy, which is uh movie about a glam rock group getting back together after all these years. And, and uh, if you
1: are a uh, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, he is he has a role in uh, the sequel series, House of the Dragon. He okay. uh, plays Ma- uh, Maester Gerardus. He's the maester in that series.
0: Okay, well, I've only seen the first season of Game of Thrones, so but he does a very good job capturing all of Jimmy's uh, problems and yet still making you feel for him at the end. Yeah. Even though he does a b- lot of uh, not-so-good things. And Steph. Uh, And uh, Leslie Ash is also very good at staff. An actor who I'm most familiar with among the main characters, Phil Davis plays Chalky, who's who's a mod who gets beat up by some of the rockers. And I mostly know him through his work with Mike Lee on movies like High Hopes and Vera Drake. And he's very good in his role here. And another... Act uh, Mike Lee favorite shows up very briefly here, one of his first movies. Timothy Spall plays the projectionist in the movie theater that we briefly see Jimmy in early on in the movie. And then, of course, in his very first film role, Sting. Uh, When they were filming the movie, the police had just recorded their very first album, Outlandos more So, Sting wasn't very well known at the time. The album came out after the movie was shot, but before the movie came out. So, by then, Sting was somewhat of a known commodity. But Yeah, I think at that s-
1: point, the only other thing that anybody had seen him in would have been the police, all three of them. And I think their hair was colored at that point. They had done a chewing gum commercial. And... <laughs> And that was about it.
0: Okay. But he, you know, he certainly captures the look of someone who is a leader. And yet you're not surprised when you find out what he really does. And he handles the bit where he pays the judge by check uh, very well. He has a lot of cheeky humor in that scene. Now... There's, before we wrap this up, there is a precursor to this movie I wanted to bring up. It's a movie from 1970 called Bronco Bullfrog, which, although it is not involved music of the time or rock music of the time, it is another movie based on disaffected British youth and is also done in a near-realistic style. Um, It's from 1970, written and directed by Barney Platt's Mills. Uh, No names in the cast, although the person who plays the title character, because the character is the name of the movie refers to a person, Bronco Bullfrog, or at least their nickname. The actor who plays him is named, funnily enough, Sam Shepard, except he spells his name differently from the American playwright slash actor. But if you can find the movie, that one is worth checking out as well. Not quite as good as Quadrophenia the movie is, but in its own right, it is a good portrait of British youth at the time. Do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap this up, Claude?
1: No, I think I am good for the time being.
0: All right, so immediately... After this, we go into part two, which is Pink Floyd, The Wall.
1: That's coming up immediately in your podcast feed, so stick around.